Open your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 8. We continue our study of Mark's gospel in verse 22. We'll continue to verse 26. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. And they, that is Jesus and the disciples, came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even Enter the village. May God be praised through the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us eyes to see. And we thank you for the interesting teaching in this passage of scripture. May we profit from it to the benefit of our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jesus got into the boat with his disciples, having just fed 4,000 people with just a few fish and loaves, he marveled. To find his followers were distressed over their own lack of provisions. And he asked them, this is Mark 8, 18, right before our passage, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Well, the apparent answer was that the disciples were not using their ears. They were not using their eyes in a, such a way as to inform their faith. They had not benefited spiritually from what had just happened right in front of them. And the good news, we actually made this comment studying that passage, is that the answer was right there in the boat with them, Jesus Christ. And he was able to bring them to true and saving faith. Now, just a few days earlier, Jesus had encountered a man who could not hear, and Jesus had healed his ears. Now, on the other side of the lake, Jesus will give sight to the blind. Now, the primary message of this whole collection of passages is that Jesus possesses and provides the power we need to believe in him and be saved. That's the big picture. And since the one healing, the, he, the hearing miracle, took place on the Gentile side of the lake, and this seeing miracle takes place back on the Jewish side of the lake, we are reminded that anybody can be saved, Jew or Gentile, whatever class you're in. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you will only come to him, he will save you. Now, the account of Jesus' healing of this blind man sits at the major intersection in John, Mark's gospel, basically between the first half and the second half. And a number of scholars think that we've now crossed the divide. We're in the second half. Well, the second half of the gospel is Jesus' journey with his disciples towards Jerusalem and then the cross. And the reason they think that is because he's no longer wandering through the Gentile lands. He's come back to the Jewish lands, and that's going to lead him to Jerusalem. I actually think that the other view is the right view, that this is the last passage of the first portion. Why? Because John has been, Mark has been developing this theme of the spiritual dullness of the disciples. And this fits together with the whole. He's been talking about, do you hear? Do you see? He healed a deaf man. Now he's going to heal a blind man. And this is what we see. Now at the end of this passage, we're left wondering, when are they going to believe? 
when are their ears, when are their eyes really going to work? Well, the answer is in the passage that follows, which I think is the beginning then of the second half of Mark's gospel. Peter, when he's challenged by Jesus, he gives a believing answer, you are the Christ. And so in this final passage, before the ears and the eyes of the disciples receive fully the ability to hear and see, that is to believe, we're reminded of the grace that Jesus provides, that, that Jesus is more than able to overcome the unbelief of all who belong to him. Well, Mark's account of Jesus' healing of the blind man at Bethsaida includes a number of details that by now are pretty familiar. Bethsaida, by the way, was a populous fishing village on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. It was the hometown of three disciples, Peter, Andrew, and Philip. We learned that in the Gospel of John. And Mark tells us that when Jesus and the disciples got there, verse 22, some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Now, a couple chapters later, as we're getting close to Jerusalem, Jesus will encounter another blind man, blind Bartimaeus in Jericho. He's more famous because when Jesus is passing by, Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is there and he calls out to him, son of David, have mercy on me. That's very commendable. This blind man's not that way. Jesus is in Bethsaida. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't call out to Jesus. He doesn't seek after Jesus. Uh, His good news is that he had friends who did apparently believe in Jesus. They understood that Jesus is able to heal. He has to do is touch someone. They learned that and they appealed to Jesus on his behalf. My friends, we may have many trials in life. This blind man certainly had them. But if we have friends who know Jesus, we are not without hope. And these friends believed in the Lord. They set an example for us that we should be fervently praying to the Lord for unbelieving family and friends. They're not going to pray for themselves in unbelief. But we're, as these men begged Jesus to touch him, we should plead with him in prayer. Oh, open the hearts of our family members. Give me an opportunity to witness the gospel. That's an important prayer. The day that this blind man's friends brought him to Jesus turned out to be the greatest day of his life. And how many of us can say the same thing? Oh, I had somebody who witnessed to me. I had somebody who invited me to church, and I can't believe I actually went. And I heard the gospel, and I was saved. The greatest thing ever happened to me was someone brought me to Jesus. Well, when Jesus healed the deaf and mute man in chapter 7, Mark said that Jesus took him aside from the crowd privately. And he does the same thing here. Look at verse 23. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Now, scholars discuss various reasons why Jesus may have taken the man, at least to the outskirts of the town. One possible reason is Bethsaida, we learn, particularly in Matthew's gospel, is a place that is noted for a particularly hardened unbelief against Jesus. Jesus singles out Bethsaida for judgment from God. He says in Matthew eleven twenty one, Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you, maybe this was one of them, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So, so maybe Jesus wanted to get him out of Bethsaida. Another reason is that Jesus, and this is certainly we finding it to be true, he wasn't primarily doing his, his miracles for show. He was doing them for mercy. He was doing them for compassion. And just earlier, the, the Pharisees said, show us a sign. Well, Jesus had been performing miracles the whole time, and, and he's not using the miracles as a public display to wow people into faith. Another explanation is Jesus' humble nature. 
leading him not wanting his good deeds to be performed in a way that would draw attention to himself. Alexander McLaren writes, Is Jesus not doing here what he tells us to do? Let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. Mark, Matthew 6, 3. Finally, and I think this is the most likely explanation, Jesus wanted the privacy to minister to this man on a personal basis. Isn't that wonderful? We've seen this several times. Jesus ministers to us on an individual basis. He comes to know us. He ministers to us as we are. Kent Hughes imagines our Lord Jesus kindly guiding the man as he's leading him out of the town and he's verbally directing him where to step, where not to step. He's steadying him when he stumbles. And as the man gains confidence in Jesus and sees his goodwill, we can imagine him starting to tell Jesus his life story. It becomes evident because he, when his eyes are open, he knows what he's talking about, that he was not born blind, he became blind. Maybe he told Jesus that. And what it's been like, the sorrows that he has, maybe his hopes that somebody could give him sight. Jesus ministered to him tenderly on a personal basis. Now again, when Jesus healed the deaf man, he used a rudimentary form of sign language to communicate what he was preparing to do. And it seems like that's going on in a different way here in verse 23. Jesus spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him. By the way, the Greek could mean he applied his saliva. It doesn't mean he necessarily spat in his face. Uh, In the ancient world, though, that was a good thing. And there's a general belief in the healing power of saliva. It would be a way of communicating as he, I think, spits on his hand and puts it on his eyes that I'm going to heal your eyes. Be prepared. I want you to trust in the Lord. And then he touched him. Every time we read that Jesus touches someone, some sinner, someone in misery, our hearts should just glow. Uh, Jesus, sure, he could, and he does sometimes. He can heal from far away at his word. But he likes to get his hands on us, into us. He wants to touch us. Think a blind person, what it means to feel the touch. Jesus doesn't keep his hands free from being unsullied with contact with us. No, he is near to us in our misery. He touches us. Now, blindness is the latest of the afflictions that Jesus heals in Mark's gospel, which together combine to display the miserable effects of sin in the world. There's not many people today, comparatively, who are physically blind, but there's a whole lot of people. In fact, most people, and this is what this is really talking about, are spiritually blind. They are not able to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They do not see Jesus in his person and work. And it becomes clear again that this man at some time lost his eyesight. We're not told why, but we do know why people don't have spiritual sight. We know exactly why. It's the curse of sin. It's the consequence of mankind's sinful condition that we are spiritually blind Because of sin, Psalm 82 verse 5 says, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. People have eyes that work, but but they're spiritually blind. Paul says they're darkened in their understanding. That's true of the whole human race until there is redemption in Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus said to that inquiring Pharisee, Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, that it is necessary first for God to do a work of grace in our lives. Only then can we see 
and believe the gospel. Unless one is born again, Jesus says, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 3. They're seeing as a metaphor for believing. And people might go to this blind man or someone like that and try to describe a beautiful sunrise, but it would all be lost on him. Likewise, the glories of Christ, the blessings of the gospel are beyond the comprehension of unregenerate sinners. They must first have their eyes opened. And just like all the other affliction with Jesus healed, the problem was nobody could do it. This problem is beyond human help. Who can give sight to the blind? Like most people in their totally depraved condition, uh, this blind man seems to have resigned himself to this darkened life, and he was just going to make the best of it until his friends brought him to Jesus. In the same way, men and women in sin are without hope in and of themselves, and, and so usually they, they don't seek salvation. Uh, they need believers to seek it for them. They're just trying to make the best of a miserable life. Life is hard, then you die. They say those kinds of things and they try to have a little pleasure along the way. In fact, so vast is the problem of spiritual darkness that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, is some of the greatest teaching in the whole Bible, just the doctrines of grace that are laid out. It's just wonderful stuff. And then Paul immediately gives a prayer and he prays for this, that the eyes of your hearts would be open to receive the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ, uh, who is the image of God. Paul's writing to a church, and he says, this is the greatest thing I've ever written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it is. Memorize Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. It'll do you much good. But Paul says, now I have to pray that God will open their eyes. Even as believers, we should pray for the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. Father, grant me the eyes to see, give my mind the ability to believe and understand. And we need to pray especially for the world bound in the darkness of unbelief. Now, in every other miracle we studied in Mark's gospel, Jesus performs his mighty work with a command. And so he'll say to some, a layman, rise up and walk. It's a command. That's how his miracle's done. Or there's the leper, be clean. And the man was clean. This is different, though. On this occasion, Jesus follows his healing with a question. Look at verse 23, he asked the man, do you see anything? In fact, this episode is the only time in all four Gospels where Jesus exercises his healing power and then asks the man how he's doing. Now that clues us that something interesting is going on here. And the man's answer indicated, well, in fact, a great miracle has been performed. He begins with the word, I see. Now, when you're blind and you can then say, I see, there's been a great mighty work in your life. He's no longer in darkness. There is light coming through his eyes. And yet his sight was not fully restored. Here's his answer in full, verse 24. I see people, but they look like trees walking. Uh, hearing these words, Jesus went back to work. Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, verse 25. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, here we have the first, indeed the only time in Jesus' ministry where he performs a miraculous work that is not immediately successful. So here's the question. What are we to make of the question? What are we to make of this situation? What is the message intended for us? 
Well, first, let me just say we can be sure it's not because Jesus failed. Not because he tried. It was just a really hard case. We had to do it again. That's clearly not the case here. Now, we, this is a person we've previously seen walking on water. We've seen him commanding the winds and waves by his mere voice. No, it's not because this is too hard for him to do. That's not plausible. This is the one whom John says was in the beginning with God so that all things were made through him. He is God. And so Jesus did not need two tries to get this right. Now, given that understanding and the more likely reason, both for Jesus' unusual question and this two-stage healing is didactic. He is making a point. He is teaching and the lesson might have been a private one for the man. It might have been something about him that he understood. Although I think that's not likely for the reason that Mark, why would he include it in the gospel if it wasn't more general than just this man? In fact, we can be certain that the recipients of this lesson are none other than the disciples who were following Jesus. Go back to verse 18. In the previous passage, Jesus asked them almost identically the question he asked the man here. He says, having eyes, do you not see? That's more or less what he asked this man. What do you see? And the man's answer was that he could see for the first time in years, but he still could not perceive things clearly. Now, to say that he saw people or men, but they looked like trees walking, was to say that things were indistinct and unclear. He can tell they were men, but all he could really make out was a rough shape. It kind of looked like a tree. And Jesus, of course, knew the man was going to answer this way since he had healed his eyes only partially. That's why he asked the question so that he would give the answer that Jesus wanted spoken. And the partially healed man, what he was describing was not merely his own sight, but here, here's the main thing. He was describing the spiritual condition of the disciples in whose lives Jesus was working towards faith. Robert Gulich explains, Mark uses this story to inform the readers of his gospel where the disciples are in his narrative. I would say even more so, Jesus did this so that his disciples would be challenged about their own progress towards true and saving faith. Now think about it. What a difference there was between, on the one hand, the disciples, and on the other, the Pharisees. I mean, the Pharisees were still blind, completely blind. They were plotting to murder Jesus. In contrast, the disciples, while well, they're with Jesus, they're following Jesus, they're listening to Jesus. So there's a fundamental enlightenment on their part that's totally absent on the other part. And yet, while they could see, the truth about Jesus and about his gospel had not yet come into clear focus. Uh, their hope for a true and saving sight was the same hope as this partially blind man possessed. They were in the hands of Jesus Christ. And he sees through to the end what he begins by his grace. What they were to do, what these disciples needed to do, is what the blind man did, to turn back to Jesus to present themselves for his continued touch, to give thought, thoughtful attention to his teaching, to note the implications of the things that they'd been witnessing, to have ears to hear and eyes to see. And Mark's narrative shows that Jesus didn't leave this man in his partially blind condition. Look at verse 25. Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again so that his sight was fully restored and he saw everything. Sinclair Ferguson comments that Jesus was now leading the disciples by the hand to the point at which their sight would become clearer. 
In fact, the very next passage shows that he accomplishes his end. Finally, he presses them, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives the great confession, you are the Christ. That'll be our next passage, Mark 8, verse 29. Now, what was true for the disciples may be true for many of us. We may have heard the witness of a Christian friend. We may have heard attended a sermon about salvation. We may even have grown up in the church, and we know all kinds of Bible miscellany. But we don't, despite those blessings, we don't have a clear sense of what it means to believe in Jesus. What, is, what does it mean to be saved? And what, what is the basis of our going to heaven? Uh, we remain largely unclear about the unique identity of Jesus as the Son of God and the incarnate uh, Son, the, the servant of the Lord. We are, we're not clear about the manner of our salvation and why that is. Spiritually speaking, we see the gospel as people like trees walking. That's where this is going. We have a general sense. We see the general shape, but we're not entirely clear about the Christian message and life. Now, the good news for those who've been born again, even if we are presently doctrinally unclear, is that Jesus does not give up on a salvation he has begun. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6. We have an example here. Jesus doesn't give up. He doesn't start and then fail. And so from our point of view, though, we, we, we should say this. If we realize that we're like this man, we were, not, we're unclear about these essential truths, we need to do what he did. We need to go back to Jesus. We need to turn our face to him. We need to apply ourselves to his ongoing ministry. Now, how do I do that? I do it through the word of God. That's how I do it. If I find myself going, I, I, I'm unclear. I need Jesus to touch me, to complete it. The way that Jesus ministers to us today is through his word, his supernatural word, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We, we apply our minds faithfully and prayerfully to the study of the Bible. We ask him to open our eyes and fully see the meaning of his word. Now, one of the greatest things to do in that pursuit is to regularly attend a church that teaches the Bible seriously and clearly and faithfully with sermons that have the aim of teaching the Bible, explaining its meaning and applying it. Ah, it's awfully good if there's Sunday school classes. And you grow, you go there, you learn. That's the whole point of it. And to, to grow in your understanding and your clarity. Uh, one of the blessings of the internet age is we have sermons online. People say to me all the time, I listen to your sermon again. And I, I, it blesses me. Well, there's a lot in it. So it's not a bad thing to do. I was just in Peru last week. Thank you for praying for me. It was really an extraordinary time. And one of the things I learned is that what a blessing the cell phone is in northern Peru. Because you have these poor people in the fields, working in the fields, and what are they doing all day? They're listening to their pastor's sermon from the previous week again, and they're thinking about it. They're, they're, they're seeking clarity in the doctrines of Scripture. One of the great blessings of our time is that you can attend, you can listen to some of the greatest preaching in the world, some of the most gifted, faithful, clear teaching. It's right there on your internet, and your elders would be happy to give you some suggestions. You might have some friends who would help you as well. Now, the point is this, is that we pursue the clear light of knowledge and understanding through the word of God. David, in Psalm 119, he spoke for all of us when he said, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light from my path. That's what I need. I need to be enlightened. I need not to see dimly and vaguely, but to see things clearly. That happens in the light of the word of God. If you will 
Study God's word earnestly. If you will pray for God to, to, to teach you clearly through his word, he will fully open your eyes. Now, there is no higher blessing than the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ by his spirit-inspired word. We grow in God's grace as we understand the Bible's teaching, and then we are able to apply it to our lives. I know some people are inhibited. They, they don't, they're, they're nervous about starting. And they'll say, but I don't know the Bible. And I want to say to you, oh, what an exciting journey is right at your feet. I remember when I didn't know the Bible. I was converted at age 30. I still remember reading the Gospel of John for the first time and being blown away. And then you know, buying some solid books that was recommended to me so I could understand it. And, and having my mind enlightened, it changed my life. It'll change your life. What a journey you have towards a clearer vision of Christ and salvation, don't be put off. If you say, well, I I feel nervous, I don't know the Bible, Uh, be reading your Bible. Ask Christ to be your teacher through his word. Attend a faithful church where the Bible's clearly taught. Be in a Bible study, be in a Sunday school class, seek the light of the word of God and you will know him. Now, of course, in one sense, we will never see fully clearly until we enter into heaven. And yet the progression that Jesus shows here will be experienced by us. He opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now an obvious application of this passage is that the attainment of a clear faith and its blessings will often take place over time and even in stages of development. That's how this miracle works. There's a first stage, there's a second stage. And individual experiences will vary, but it will often be the case that Christians grow over time in their understanding of Scripture and then in the consistency by which they live out their faith. Uh, and, and what we've shown here, though, is that Jesus perseveres with his people. And there's a great blessing as we exert effort in the vitally important process of understanding the doctrines of scriptures. God has a plan for each of us. We have certain gifts. We have certain callings. And so what he does quickly in someone's life, he may do over a longer period of time. But what's important is that we need to continue to seek to grow in our faith. You and I have no more precious possession than the faith that is the gift of God. We should seek to grow. We should tend to it and guard it. We should pray for God to give us the grace that we would advance in our discipleship to Jesus. Now, on this occasion, Jesus brings this subject from blindness to sight in two stages. But that does not mean that there is a rigid two-stage process to spiritual growth. And I bring that up because of the prevalence of erroneous and very damaging two-stage schemes that have plagued the evangelical church for the past, oh, 150 years or so. Uh, and there's, a, there's ideas that there are one class of believers that lives on a high life, and often that language is used, the higher life. And that's, that's one class. And the other class, they live on a lower class. Now, now, one way you'll hear this said, maybe you've heard it, is that there are carnal Christians and spiritual Christians. Some people are carnal Christians, they, they're saved, they believe in Jesus, but they live like the world. Carnal is a word for fleshly, Latin word for flesh. And so they, they continue to live in a sinful way, they think in a worldly way, but you know, they're church members and they're Christians. On the other hand, you have spiritual Christians and they walk in the spirit. Uh, what's the problem with the carnal versus spiritual Christian classification? Well, the problem's on both sides. The biggest problem is the carnal Christian, so defined, is not a Christian. 
I actually think this way comes out of the revivalist movement, where through all kinds of manipulations, non-Christians have been brought in the church, we create a lower class of Christians who are not Christians. We tell them they're Christians, but the Bible says very clearly, if you're leading a carnal life, if you live according to the flesh, if you're not at least, if there's not a beginning of a transformation in your life, you are not a carnal Christian, you are a non-Christian. The Bible is very clear that uh, we, if we believe in Jesus in a saving way, we are born again of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit begins the process of holiness. But there's also no truly spiritual Christians. There, there, are, there are no perfectly spiritual Christians. We're all the best Christians, a little carnal, and hopefully not that much, uh, and, and growingly becoming led by the Holy Spirit. But until we die and enter heaven, we will still have a residue of sin. So the whole classification falls apart. Paul says in Philippians 3 that he has not yet reached this perfect spiritual plane, but he's pressing on. And so the carnal versus spiritual Christian two-stage classification is unbiblical and very unhelpful. Let me give you another two-stage scheme that is wrong. It goes with what's called lordship salvation in recent years. And, and it goes like this. Well, there's two kinds of Christians. Every time you hear that, worry yourself a little bit. Uh, there's two kinds of Christians. Uh, and, and they'll say, there are two kinds of people, non-Christians and Christians, but the two schemes of Christians. And they'll say, well, so, uh, some have accepted Jesus as Savior, and, and, and you come to Jesus as Savior, and then later, at least some of you will then accept him as Lord. And the whole idea is that lordship, Christ's lordship is not necessary to salvation. Uh, you should, but it'll happen later. You come to him as savior, later on you come to him as lord. At least some of you will, but you don't need to to be saved. Now that is completely false. In fact, we'll see it in, in this very chapter. <laughs> Jesus is very clear that you come to Jesus who is lord and savior. If anyone would follow me, he must take up his cross and die. That's lordship. And so there is no two-scheme salvation. Uh, if you say, I want Jesus as Savior but not as Lord, you're not, you're not embracing the true Jesus. He is Lord and Savior. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But that involves a surrender of your life. Let me give you one last two-tier scheme. And it's that which says that the, it speaks of a second blessing. You have your average Christian and they don't have the Spirit. Then you have those who've had the second blessing. Again, it's the higher life. And they have, they've had an experience that means they have the Spirit. And in some circles, it's shown by speaking in tongues. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem is it is not possible to be a Christian without possessing the Holy Spirit. Uh, often the term is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is seen to be a two, second stage, higher life. The problem is the biblical language, baptism of the Holy Spirit, refers to the work of Pentecost. The once for all act when Jesus poured out his spirit on the church is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We partake of it not in a second blessing, but at the moment of our conversion. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 1.13. You also, when you heard the word of truth... The gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When were you sealed with the promised Holy Spirit? When you heard and believed. There are no Christians who are not blessed by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now I say this to guard you against the, the dangerous and damaging two-tier schemes that sometimes promote themselves from this text. So what is Jesus highlighting then with this? Two, no doubt there are two stages here. Well, the point is, he's pointing out that we need to be clear 
about the biblical teachings, particularly concerning his person and work. And in a few verses, Peter will give the, the great confession. He's going to say, you are the Christ. That, by the way, is Jesus. That's not Jesus' last name. That's his office. He is Jesus the Messiah. Christ is the Greek word for Meshuach, the Hebrew word for Messiah. It's the promised one who dies on the cross for the sins of the people. And we need to know the, the saving work of Jesus. He, he was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect life on our behalf. He died that death that, that gives forgiveness of our sins. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven where he's pleading our, our, for our blessing at this moment. And he is coming back soon to end the age, to judge the ungodly and to bring his own people into the eternal glory. That's what the Christ does we need to be crystal clear on those things in matthew's version he also adds his person you are the christ the son of the living god he is a unique son of god who came from earth and was able to accomplish this message that's jesus message we need to be crystal clear about him now an application of this lesson is provided by martin lloyd jones in his very valuable book titled spiritual depression, its causes, and cure. And Lloyd-Jones raises questions about professing Christians. He was an English pastor about 50 years ago now who was concerned about nominal Christianity, an empty, dead Christianity. And he's concerned about people who are professing Christians, but they're like this blind man after his first healing. They don't really have a clear view of the gospel, particularly the doctrines of the Christian faith, only the vaguest idea. And Lloyd-Jones talks about some people, these are usually not saved people, that what they're drawn to is, is, the, is the life of Jesus, the ethic of Jesus, to the Sermon on the Mount. And they'll say, you know, the, the Christianity I want is a Sermon on the Mount. I want everyone to live out the Sermon on the Mount. Well, who doesn't? And, and that's my Christianity. But that's your Christianity. You're not trusting him for your salvation, and you're almost certainly not saved at all. Because what, but there's other people that they're going to go forward to that. They have some vague sense that Jesus is Savior, but they don't know exactly what it is that he does in salvation. Now, I do believe this is a large number of evangelical Christians today due to the poor standard of teaching in the church. Jesus, Jesus well, what do you mean by Jesus? It's, it slows down then. You know, he saves us. What does it mean that he saves us? You know. And Lloyd-Jones points out that if, if, if that's like saying with respect to the gospel, I see it like men like trees walking. I have a general vague sense, but I don't, I don't see it clearly. And, and that is what Jesus is teaching through this passage. And Lloyd-Jones writes correctly that if that's where you are, you will not have power in your life. Your will will not be under the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because you don't see Jesus clearly. I've often said, if you ask me, what is the greatest need of the evangelical church and our generation, of this church, it's that the members would wholly consecrate ourselves to Jesus Christ. It's not going to be perfect. But we don't settle with Jesus on the periphery. We don't settle, particularly with the Bible, by saying, you know, Jesus, faith, salvation. What do those words mean? And it ought to be the case that these are our life. I'd love for you to come up to me, and I know a lot of our people would be, and say, who's the, tell me about the personal work of Jesus Christ. Excellent. Let's talk about it. Let's rejoice in it. Because as we do, we find the Spirit working within us, and there's power coming up with us. Jesus says, you will know the truth. If you're truly my disciples, you will, you will, you will know my truth. And the, what will the truth do? The truth will set you free. 
the truth of the word of God, the doctrines of the Christian faith give us power. They affect our wills. They give us a joy in the Lord that becomes our strength. This is why this is so important. Lloyd-Jones asserted for unclear why Jesus had to die, why he rose from the dead, what it means to be justified through faith alone. Well, then our Christianity has an eyesight like the man who could see men but only like trees walking. Now, again, the purpose of Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression, was to raise the question why so many professing Christians, as he observed, lacked joy. Why were they miserable? Why did they lack power? Why did, they, why did the church lack, lack power in its witness? Because there was no light coming from the lives of their people. And he sees this miracle of Jesus highlighting the blind man as highlighting the problem of an unclear faith with the result of confusion in life and an inability to follow him as we ought to do. Lloyd-Jones argues that when Christians are not clear about basic biblical teaching, it may be that they are saved. It's true, you can be saved without doctrinal knowledge and all its clarity. But he points out that it's when we understand clearly who Jesus is, what he did for our salvation that there is no longer confusion. There is light shining in the places of darkness, and that light produces inward power. Now again, we realize that Jesus performed this miracle the way he did in order to reveal his disciples' spiritual condition by his examples. Jesus said, do you see anything? And Lloyd-Jones points out that what saved the man was he answered honestly. I I see, but not very clearly. I see people, but they look like trees walking. And Lloyd-Jones points out that when Jesus asks us that question, we should answer him honestly as well. He says, what exactly do we see? Have we got things clearly? Are we happy? Do we have spiritual power? Do we really see the light of the glory of of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus? Do we know God? Do we know Jesus? Is there a light before our path that is compelling and powerful? And if the truth that we see is is dim and we're not enthusiastic about Jesus, and if as a result our Christianity is on the periphery rather than the center of our lives, well, we will know nothing of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, which the Bible says ought to belong to God's people. No, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, in the case of many people, maybe some of us, the first step is to distance ourselves from false teaching, particularly the false teaching that does not accept the authority of the Bible. We need to believe that the Bible is God's word, and so we don't argue with what it says. We don't substitute humanistic or pagan ideas, but we say, speak, Lord, your servant is hearing, and we need to be in churches where we believe in the authority of the Bible, and then the Bible is clearly taught and applied. And then in virtually every case, we need to become newly interested in sound doctrine from the Scripture. Let me commend that to you. Well, Mark concludes this narrative with Jesus calling to the healed man, and Jesus doesn't want a public spectacle. We've seen this before. Verse 26, he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And again, we surmise that Jesus is trying to avoid a premature confrontation with the Pharisees. Although I think in this case, it may be that he wanted the healed man to have time for 
prayer and reflection without the hubbub of you know, being the subject of a miracle from Jesus Christ. And maybe we too should take some quiet time. Let's stand before Jesus and let him ask us the question, what do you see? And when he says that, let's answer clearly. Do we have clear light regarding the Bible? Do we understand the doctrines of the Bible? And is that light producing warmth? And is there power from the word of God that is energizing us for for a godly life and a a peaceful life? And yes, we have all kinds of troubles and we we struggle emotionally and physically, but we're not without power from the Lord. There's a great truth shining in our minds. It's the truth of the the word of God and the clarity of its doctrines. What, What do we say when Jesus says, what do you see? Can you say that? Well, this formerly blind man was honest enough to admit that he didn't. And if you're that way, then turn back to Jesus Christ. Go to his word. Ask him to shine the light of his word clearly. Uh, attend to the preaching of the word. Pursue the, 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 the attainment of clear doctrinal truth. Are we unclear about Jesus and the way of salvation? Has an unclear faith led us into a formal, lifeless, joyless, inconsistent Christian faith? Well, if so, Jesus is the answer. And he will direct us to his life-giving, light-providing word. Let me give the last word to Lloyd-Jones. Here's his exhortation. If we have to say, I only see men as trees walking, then let's do this. Lloyd-Jones says, come to Jesus. Come to his word. Wait upon him. Plead with him. Hold on to him. Ask him in the words of the hymn. Holy Spirit, truth divine, dawn upon this soul of mine. Word of God and inward light, wake my spirit, clear my sight. Father, we thank you for this unusual passage, which you clearly have designed not only that the disciples would be provoked into thinking about their spiritual condition with such good results, but Lord, you want to provoke us to think about our spiritual condition. And I pray for those who don't even see trees at all, who have no knowledge, Lord, but you do a miracle, even through your word. Give them eyes to see, to believe in Jesus Christ. It's the, it's the miracle you do whenever you save people. But Father, Jesus seems to be particularly concerned about those who've made some affiliation with him, but their eyes are not fully open. Father, cause everyone in that condition to lay hold of Jesus. And Lord, we know his grace. We trust him to, be, to conclude to complete the good work he has done. Oh, Lord, complete the work you've done in each of our lives. Give us eyes fully to see, and then may that light warm our hearts with all the blessings of eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.